almost every cell has insulin receptors. You know, when you have insulin, insulin binds to the receptor and it helps glucose get into the cell. But the problem is that when you're constantly eating foods that are overstimulating your pancreas, they're secreting lots of insulin, those cells and those receptors become overwhelmed. And what happens is that the cell says, I have too much glucose, I can't take any more in. So they just get rid of the receptors. Well, if that happens, then glucose can't get into the cell, right? Because you don't have a receptor. So the pancreas says, hey, there's a lot of glucose in this bloodstream. It can't stay here. I'm going to secrete more insulin to hopefully get the glucose out of the blood and into the cell. So now you have more insulin secreting, you have more of those receptors internalizing, and over time, this becomes diabetes. Doctor said you got PCOS, now go on girl, just lose some weight. Till I took the symptoms into my own hands and reversed them naturally. So I became a dietitian and helped my sisters feel the best they've ever felt. If you wanna prove them wrong and take control of yourself, join a sister and a mister. Welcome, Ali. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Ali's also joined by her husband, Johnny, who this is a really interesting episode because just like us with me and Talia, wife and husband, Ali and Johnny are also, they work together, uh, wife and husband on PCOS, as well as other insulin resistance and diabetes related areas of topics and just overall women's health. So it's really great to to see um, both of you here. Thanks. We're excited. Yeah, glad to be here. So Ali, um, I know you have PCOS. So before we jump into it, do you want to share your story about how you were diagnosed? I would love to. This is such a big part of, of what we're doing. So let's see. I didn't start my period till I was 16, which is pretty late, actually. And I had probably a cyst. I had cysts, obviously, but I had probably had one period every year from 16 to 21 and terrible acne. I was on Accutane twice, which I don't even know if they still prescribe Accutane anymore, but I was on it twice um, during high school. And I had a lot of anxiety. I was actually a foreign exchange student. I went to live in Brazil for a year and I didn't have a period the whole year. Terrible acne, 30 pound weight gain. Um, and I, I had been struggling with my weight even in high school. And I remember my host mom at the time got very concerned that I wasn't having a period. So she took me to an OBGYN there and they that OBGYN said, do you drink milk? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, maybe just see if not drinking milk helps your acne. And it was amazing how that, really just kind of cleared it up. Um, and I'd already always wanted to be a dietitian. So when I came back from Brazil, I was at least 30 plus pounds heavier. Um, I started studying nutrition, still no period, still weight, keep gaining weight, following all the, all the things that they tell you to do as a dietitian. And it was my last year that I was there. And I, I went to the on-campus clinic and it was a, a women's health nurse practitioner who actually diagnosed me. And she said, you have PCOS, you're going to need to watch your weight and here are some birth control pills. And I thought, wow, I'm about to graduate as, to be a dietitian. I was about to finish my nutrition degree to go on and do an internship. And I thought, I've never heard of PCOS. I had absolutely no idea how my food or my diet could affect my ovaries. Um, and this was at Texas A&M. So that's one of the bigger schools in Texas, one of the better schools for nutrition in Texas. And they did not teach PCOS at all. So I decided to go and get a master's degree um, and really kind of learn more about this and to help myself and also help other people. So that was a little bit about my PCOS journey. 
Oh, we sound so similar. I had yeah. really bad cystic acne. I was like 30 pounds overweight. And then when I cut out dairy and gluten, my skin cleared up. And I mean, of course, with that, I lost some weight, but not all the weight. There were other components. And it's just such a journey, right? Because they don't teach us this in school. They don't. I mean, your average nutrition or internship, dietetic internship is really around diabetes management, heart disease and cardiovascular disease, and then tube feeding. So yeah. it's it's not about reproductive health. And if they did talk about PCOS, it was like, you know, one little box and the textbook under diabetes. Like it didn't, I don't even really remember having any formal education about insulin resistance and what that was and how to detect it. I mean, none of that, not even, I mean, I will be even say that during my PhD. So at this point, the other girls that were in my PhD program for nutrition, they'd all been studying nutrition for nine years at this point. It's our last year. And I gave a presentation about my dissertation, which was about PCOS. And I'd say that eight out of nine of them had never even heard of PCOS. I mean, these are people studying nutrition for nine years. I mean, it's just not part of the formal education. And I think that's a big problem. It's a huge problem. One in like five women have PCOS. It should be like an entire semester class of yeah. understanding like reproductive metabolic hormonal health. Like that's what the class should be called. And yeah. we should run it, me and you. We should. <laughs> we should. One of these days. You know, what's even crazier is that, you know, a few years ago, and I mentioned this earlier, but a few years ago, I, I got a grant from the National Science Foundation to help, you know, launch this company. And part of that was that we had to interview healthcare providers about PCOS and how they help manage this for patients. And we interviewed this OBGYN and she had been in practice for 40 years, four zero, 40 years. And we asked her how comfortable she was with the diagnosis and treatment of PCOS. And she said only somewhat comfortable. So it's not even just dietitians. I mean, it is it is the whole medical system that has, it's too complex. They say it's too complex. I don't know. It's just, it's complicated. It's too complex. Let's give everyone birth control and pretend it's not happening. Like that's what we're doing. And then when they come back and they're infertile, we'll give them Clomid or Clomid. we'll dry it up and we'll just be done. Like We'll just be done with it. And then whoever can't get pregnant is going to go through IVF. It's going to be expensive, intense, and emotionally draining, but we just don't know. It's too complicated. <laughs> exactly. That's what we're doing today in the medical. That's our healthcare. <laughs> that's our, and it's not just the US. You know, yeah. we interview patients from... Russia from Philippines. I mean, so I put it on Reddit. I said, you know, I'm part of this National Science Foundation program. I'm looking to understand about your experiences within, you know, PCOS and the medical system. And I got reached out to by women all over the world and they all had the same experience. It's not just in the US. It really is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're the only ones on Instagram screaming and yelling and telling everyone to like change their diet and lifestyle and manage their insulin resistance, which is what I really want to talk about today because you explain it so well in your reels. I really enjoyed watching them. And um, there's one in particular you did with like an apple and a golf thing. What's it called? Golf, ball. golf tees. Tea. And you like stuck it in the apples and you're like, this is an insulin receptor. So do you want to explain from like the way that you explain it, insulin resistance, and then we can get into some of the questions about it. 
absolutely. I wish that I had it and here, but so I explain it this way in that, so the apple was a cell. So if you think about your cell, you every cell, almost every cell has insulin receptors. Some have more, some have less, but you know, even your ovary, your theca cells, um, the, the cells in the ovaries that are actually producing testosterone, they all have insulin receptors. Mm-hmm. And so in the in the video, I explained that, you know, when you have insulin, insulin binds to the receptor and it helps glucose get into the cell. But the problem is that when you're constantly eating foods that are overstimulating your pancreas, that are they're secreting lots of insulin, those cells and those receptors become overwhelmed, basically. And what happens is that the cell says, hey, I have too much glucose. I, I can't take any more in. So they just get rid of the receptors. So they internalize the receptors and take them off the surface. Well, if that happens then glucose can't get into the cell, right? Because you don't have a receptor. So the pancreas says, hey, there's a lot of glucose in this bloodstream. It can't stay here. I'm going to secrete more insulin to hopefully get the glucose out of the blood and into the cell. But that kind of creates this vicious cycle, right? So now you have more insulin secreting. You have more of those receptors internalizing. And over time, this becomes diabetes where glucose is not being able to get in the cell. It just rises in the blood and patient's diagnosed. So the way to reverse this is that if you give yourselves a break from that insulin, if you kind of focus on eating foods that don't oversecrete insulin, insulin levels lower, which means the cells can start putting those receptors back on the surface, glucose can get into the cell, the pancreas stops oversecreting, insulin levels fall, which then results in t- testosterone levels falling. Did that was that good? That yes. was a reenactment. <laughs> Yes, it was. That was a really good explanation. Loved it. So why I always explain like inositol or metformin is really preventing or slowing the internalization of those receptors, right? So if you can prevent the internalization of the receptor, then glucose continue to get in the cell and insulin levels aren't as high, but you can't just continue eating this diet and think you're going to take an acetol or metformin and it's somehow going to be magic because you're still bombarding those receptors and those cells with insulin. And so it really starts with what you eat with the addition of, you know, other tools like an acetol that can help yeah. improve that more. The American lifestyle is just like every single component of it feeds into being insulin resistant. So you can't just like heal it with one supplement. There's like so many things that you can do to help insulin resistance. And so many things that you might think you're doing that are healthy for you, quote unquote, but are actually making it worse. One of the things that you mentioned in on Instagram as I was stalking you was dairy. You explained so well how um, insulin-like growth factor stimulates the insulin hormone and like why that happens to um, animals. It's like baby animals who are drinking their mother's milk, right? So I'd love for you to get into that. Absolutely. So this is such a controversial and emotional topic for so many. That's why I want you to talk about it on our podcast, because the people who listen to our podcast care about these types of things. This is a safe space. Talk about (laughs) gluten and dairy. I think also is that when you come up to a place of of explaining why, then people are a little bit more open-minded. So for example, milk. First is to remind everybody that all milk is technically breast milk. It's just 
breast milk from a cow. And so if you think about the purpose of breast milk, first, of course, providing nutrition to a newborn, of course, it's providing antibodies, but a huge component of breast milk is to help stimulate growth in a baby. So a baby doubles its length in one year and it triples its weight. And it doesn't do that because they're eating tons of calories. It's doing that because there's naturally occurring growth hormones in milk. I know there's this idea that milk is toxic. It has all these artificial growth hormones. No, the growth hormones in milk are naturally occurring because it's supposed to stimulate growth. And so it does this in two ways. So milk itself has insulin and insulin growth factor in the milk. And that can help serve as elevating insulin levels in the baby. And there was this idea that, well, babies can't metabolize that. It doesn't make it into circulation, but it does. So they, they do know that drinking insulin can actually lead to higher blood levels of insulin. So it's happening in the babies. The second thing in milk is that the proteins in milk are some of the highest concentrated sources of branched chain amino acids. So whey protein specifically is very rich in branched chain amino acids. And these branched chain amino acids stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin. So when you think about whey protein, there has been studies that show whey protein stimulates insulin more than a slice of white bread. And again, it's because it's so full of these branched chain amino acids. And so when you think about these two components, not only does it have insulin and IGF-1 in the milk, but the amino acids and the proteins in milk stimulate insulin. And together, this helps the baby grow. But after the age of one, we don't really need milk to grow. And especially when you get into an adult, and especially if you're somebody like PCOS, who's already over secreting insulin to most foods, having something that's just excessively secreting insulin is just making the whole process worse. Exactly. It's like even more devastating for a woman with PCOS because we're already sent like um, insulin resistant and like susceptible to cystic acne, weight gain. The last thing we need is like a hormonal cocktail milk. Yes. And people ask me about whey protein all the time. Well, should I not be supplementing with whey protein? And I thought that it's supposed to help promote growth and promote muscle growth. Well, yeah. Absolutely. It's going to promote muscle growth. And the way it does that is by secreting insulin because insulin is a growth hormone. Most women with PCOS don't need that additional insulin bomb. They can get plenty of protein through whole sources, but also egg white protein or hemp protein or bone protein or any of the other protein sources. It doesn't have to come from whey protein. Yeah. And women with PCOS, we build muscle easier. Anyways, so it's like you don't really need that boost of whey because having a little bit of extra testosterone is like advantageous, you know, if you can, if you can hone it down to like a little bit of extra testosterone and not have it be so high where it's like taking over your life and symptoms, but that can lead to more muscle growth. Exactly. Do you know what the most researched supplement for PCOS is? Yes. Inositol. But do you know that not all inositols are the same? Hush your mouth. The latest research on PCOS women uses inositol with a ratio of 40 to 1 myo and D-chiro inositol with a daily dosage of 4,000 milligrams. Well, I declare. But here's the problem. A lot of inositols out there do not use the 40 to 1 ratio and many do not have a daily dosage of 4,000 milligrams. So that one month supply of inositol you 
Wellbutrin may last half the time if you take the clinical dosage. Heavens to Betsy! Well, hold your horses, cowboy. <laughs> That's why I love Ovacetol. It comes in a ratio of 40 to 1, myo and d inositol, and it provides a daily dosage of 4,000 milligrams. It also comes in a three-month supply. And best of all, it's the only NSF-certified 40 to 1 inositol, so you know that it's been third-party tested for purity and accuracy. Well, butter my backside and call me a biscuit. Head over to ovafit.org to order your Ovacetol today with our special 15% off promo. You can also find the link in the show description. Well, I declare. Okay, that's enough. Thank God. I'm out of freezes. I like to give people a little history lesson about protein powder, whey protein powder. So about 60 years ago or so, you know, whey protein is actually a byproduct. So when you go to make cheese or Greek yogurt, Greek yogurt differs from other types of yogurt because it's almost 100% casein. So casein is that thick, rich, and whey is liquid. So when you completely remove all the whey liquid, you get this very thick yogurt, which is Greek yogurt. Same thing with cheese. To make cheese, you have to completely get rid of all the whey. So you can imagine that what happens is that you have all this whey protein byproduct sitting around and there was nothing to do with it. They didn't know how to discard it all. And so 60 years or so ago, somebody came up with this very lucrative idea that let's take all this excess whey, let's dry it, let's put it in, market it for muscle growth and health enthusiasts, and let's sell it for $35 a tub. And now we have whey that's in pancakes and waffles and muffins and everything. I mean, it's literally in everything. And again, if you remember that whey protein spikes insulin as much as a slice of white bread, if you're being told you need to be eating more protein, which I agree, protein is good, but if you're getting it in a morning protein shake and then you're eating a protein bar and then protein pancakes or protein bread and it's just whey protein all day long, I mean, your insulin levels are just up all day long. And it's not that whey protein was selected for all these foods because they're somehow it's somehow healthier. It was cheap and abundant, and so it can easily be an added to everything. Wow, I had no idea about that. That's so I'm furious. I didn't even know. That. <laughs> but I'm, I've been drinking whey protein like my whole life just because of like working out and stuff. So like it's yeah, that I I didn't know it was like one, it was a waste product, and two, it's um it spikes your insulin that much all throughout the day. But I hope you understand why now. Yeah, well, I switched over to plant based like two three years ago, so like I've been good since then. But even though like my entire life, that's pretty good, right? Same, that's so many years. Exact same thing. Isn't it good for muscle belt building? And I say, well, so are anabolic steroids. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're healthy for you. So yes, yeah. building muscle is important. And yes, eating protein is important. But simply just having more muscle mass doesn't mean you're healthier. I mean, bodybuilders are known for having poor heart health. So it's yeah. there's a fine line there about participating in strength training, making sure you're eating enough protein. But I feel so concerned for all the unknowing people that are supplementing with tons of whey and supplementing with branch chain amino acids. I mean, it's oh yeah, it's a waste. Yeah. Constant inflammation. So, um, yeah, I get upset about this, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Anytime something is just, um, anytime it's not whole, it's questionable. So like if you're having hemp protein, it's just mashed hemp. Like yeah. you're not splitting apart anything. If yeah. you're having pea protein, I think it's just like dried pea protein. Egg white protein, right. Egg, egg white, white protein, egg whites. You know, so anytime you're like splitting molecules apart, like it, it can't be good. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. 
I mean, maybe in some instances, but most it's a mess. Um, And also casein can be inflammatory. Um, I had read about how like casein is so inflammatory for so many people and they don't realize it. And um, it can even like pass through the blood brain barrier and like work on your brain receptors in a morphine like way because it converts into casomorphine and it can make you feel addicted to cheese. So when you tell someone like, don't eat cheese, you know, it's dairy, this and that, they can feel so like upset about it because they are addicted to cheese. They cannot even imagine not eating cheese because of just the way that your body can crave it because of the way casomorphine can work on your brain's opiate receptors. Very interesting. Well, so I will say, so in our studies, uh, when I developed kind of this low insulin lifestyle, which was really just around helping people understand how foods spike their insulin, I did allow them to have limited. So they can only have one serving of either full fat Greek yogurt or full fat cheese. And part of that was just trying to make something that they felt was sustainable. Because like you said, telling somebody that can no longer eat cheese, like kind of invokes this emotional reaction. Um, But from like an insulin perspective, the reason why we allow that is that when you think about casein specifically, and you ferment it, so this is not the same thing as like casein protein powder, but uh, fermented casein, like cheese and Greek yogurt, that fermentation process can break down some of the brain's chain amino acids. And so that's why we did allow them to have small amounts, just because from an insulin perspective, it wasn't spiking it as much as whey protein. But I agree. I mean, aside from a, a little bit of cheese, we pretty much are a no a no milk family. And that's just because we have two little ones and they like yeah. cheese. No, I totally agree. I mean, I feel like it's not everyone has inflammation and insulin resistance with PCOS. Like people with PCOS tend to have more inflammation and insulin resistance. So avoiding dairy altogether could be beneficial. But if you don't have a lot of inflammation, you're more focused on healing insulin resistance. I can see why like a little bit of yogurt wouldn't affect you as much. It just really depends on like the underlying root issues that are driving your symptoms and your um, autoimmune issues. Well, and also I think a lot of people, you know, our, our plan isn't low carb. They could eat as much fruit as they wanted. They could eat as much vegetables and we can get into the, the research aspect later, but well, I think y'all are already familiar with my study, I, <laughs> but studies, but I, I think a lot of times when people think they're going to start cutting out carbs, they start eating a whole lot of cheese. That's just like yeah. the first thing they do. And then they realize this, I don't feel good. And also I'm not as, it's not being as successful as they think it is. And, and speaking of the studies, what were some of like the key results and like the findings that, that came out of the studies that people can take away and maybe apply after today's episode? Absolutely. So just for them to know, so the study, the first study was really my doctoral dissertation. And I was, you know, I realized the way that we're treating PCOS is just the the, the way that nutritionally we, rec- we recommend treating PCOS just really wasn't working for me. So I kind of developed this for myself, what I call the low insulin lifestyle. And my mentor at the time was like, you should test this out. So I found an REI, a a reproductive endocrinologist, and she referred patients into the study. So that study, well, it was eight weeks long and they could follow what, you know, this low insulin, this low insulin lifestyle. And they had a 19 pound weight loss in two months. They had a 53% reduction in fasting insulin in two months and a 23% reduction in 
uh, free testosterone, which was amazing, right? They had they were not on metformin, no birth control pills, no spironolactone. And so then I, I took that and I went on and did another study um, in my postdoc. I did a postdoc and it was looking at metabolic changes because the problem with high insulin levels is that when your insulin levels are high, you actually can't access your stored body fat. So you are, two things are happening. Your body can't get energy because again, those receptors are internalizing and then glucose can't get in. Well, if it can't get glucose and it can't get body fat, it does two things. It makes you really hungry so that you'll eat more and it'll make you take a nap because it doesn't want to have to burn muscle tissue, which is the only other source of energy it has, right? So um, what we found was the exact that exact thing. These patients came in after they hadn't been eating anything for 10 hours and we put them in this machine called a metabolic cart. It's very cool. So it tells, it has uh, this mask that goes over their face and it measures how much CO2 they breathe out to how much O2 they breathe in. And it tells you whether they're burning fat or carbs. So there's this very long equation that tells you whether they're burning fat or carbs. We would expect that somebody's fasting. They haven't eaten anything in 10, yet, 10 hours. Obviously, they should be pulling fat from fat cells and using that for energy. And they absolutely were burning 100% carbohydrate. And that carbohydrate was coming from two sources, glycogen, and when you break down protein, you break down the amino acids and protein, protein looks like a sugar molecule. You took off the nitrogen and it's sugar. So they were burning muscle and they were burning glycogen, no fat. So we did the, the same thing two, two months later after they finished this and they were burning almost all fat. So it was just showing wow. how important this metabolic change was after you, after you lower your insulin. So after that, we did a, we had a, the, the REIs, the reproductive endocrinologists who actually were referring patients into the trial. They found that all these, these, several of these patients were coming back pregnant, even though they'd been struggling with pregnancy for a long time, they'd been struggling with infertility. So it was 11 patients. So they actually wrote that up as a case series. And then the last one, sorry, this is probably longer than you wanted to know. Oh, so no, that's good. Okay. The last study we did was actually, and I shouldn't say we, because I wasn't actually involved um, because it was really to have good research, it needs to be replicated. It needs to be replicated by an independent group. And so this group uh, was two reproductive endocrinologists and a OBGYN and a couple of residents. And they were so happy to see these patients getting pregnant. So they actually looked and see, well, how does this lifestyle change compare to our current standard of care, which is metformin and just the typical NIH recommendations of eat more starch, eat more low fat dairy, the my food pyramid kind of thing. Yeah. And so they they did this randomized control trial comparing this to to that. And so that is what we presented. I, I keep saying we because it's based on my program, my lifestyle change, but I wasn't actually involved. But they presented this at ASRM, which is the big fertility conference, and they got a prize poster. So we are graciously awaiting for that publication to be um, published soon. So I will definitely send it your way. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Congratulations, too, for all the hard work on the studies and and the the way they replicated and were able to prove everything through the random uh, trials. That's amazing. Great job. It was awesome. I mean, the metformin group gained a third of a pound. And so in the patients that followed the low insulin lifestyle, there actually is two groups because if we're, we're putting this app out there, we wanted to know is just watching a, a video going to be enough education for somebody to follow this. So one group was video education and the other one was um, an actual meet face to face with a dietitian. And so the, the metformin group gained a third of a pound. 
And this is the data we presented at, at ASRM, which is more of an interim analysis. So it didn't include all the patients, but it at least gives you a good idea of what we saw as results. And the face-to-face group lost 17. So huge chain difference there. And also we didn't allow, we didn't allow patients to exercise in any of our trials because when you're doing research, you have to know what part of this improvement is exercise and what part of it is this lifestyle change. So we did not allow them to exercise. So we knew that any improvements were directly just the lifestyle. Obviously we recommend exercise. That's really important, but we just couldn't do that for the research purposes. But even for insulin, the patients on metformin, which again, the whole purpose of metformin is to lower insulin levels, their insulin levels went up a point. And mm-hmm. ours, uh, went. one of them went down 12 points and the other one went down three points, but they started at different levels. So so we're really excited about, about those results. And to get what, what was the low insulin lifestyle? Like what did it exactly entail? Okay. So, and I know you're gluten-free, but a lot of this lifestyle is around starch as well. So understanding what starch is and how it affects insulin levels. So the lifestyle was as many, you know, they didn't have to count calories, no carbs, no fat counting, and they couldn't exercise and they couldn't be on any medication. They could eat all they wanted of fruit, all they wanted of non-starchy vegetables, proteins, all the healthy fats they wanted. And then they were allowed to have limited amounts, again, of full fat Greek yogurt and cheese. And they could have a six ounce glass of red wine and an ounce of dark chocolate every day. Because again, we were trying to develop this as a lifestyle change and not a diet. And I need my glass of red wine in the evening and my dark chocolate. So we we made this as, as something like that. What we didn't allow were starches. So the thing about starches is that they are the only star- they are the only carbohydrate source that is 100% glucose. And when you and I actually used this in one of the videos that explained like what happens when you eat starch and when you cook starch, it actually breaks all those glucose bonds up into something that's very easily and it spikes insulin. So that and then dairy and then of course sugar. And so that's that's what they removed. So they removed starch like yes. and dairy and sugar. And then they have a normal lifestyle, drinking wine, eating some chocolate, living their lives, protein. Minimal amounts, but... I didn't talk about protein. I said, eat a protein. I don't want you to worry about meeting a certain amount. I want you to eat when you're hungry. I want you to stop when you're full. And I don't, it doesn't matter when it is. You know, one girl said she was a night eater. She'd wake up in the middle of the night and eat, you know, eat fruit, cut up fruit and didn't go back to sleep. So it was simply just about avoiding foods that did not spike insulin. And... You know, things like I love to use the example of quinoa and like sweet potatoes because obviously they're full of nutrition. Quinoa has tons of iron, lots of fiber, lots of protein. Um, Sweet potatoes have lots of vitamin A, but it doesn't change the fact that they have lots of starch and lots of starch means lots of glucose and lots of glucose means lots of insulin. And so when you look at that compared to fruit, fruit is part fructose. Now, fructose naturally occurring is not the same thing as high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. And so when you eat fruit, you don't have as much of an insulin spike because fructose actually doesn't elicit much of an insulin spike. And so that's why they could eat all the fruit they wanted, but we just really recommended against starch. I love it. I think this is a great way to really discover, you know, how insulin resistant you are and the effects that it can have on you. So that's perfect. I mean, for me, like, even though I'm gluten-free, that doesn't mean eat whatever starch you want, because that 
has a huge impact on insulin resistance. You know, it's just like a choice of eating anti-inflammatory foods. But at the same time, like you have to know how much carbs you can tolerate. And especially if your end goal is to get pregnant or is to really improve your insulin resistance and you don't struggle with like stress hormone related issues, going low carb, eliminating starches can be very helpful. And, and I don't even call it low carb. I mean, these, these patients did do food diaries and they were eating around a hundred carbs a day, which I guess is still technically low carb, but it's not like, you know, keto low carb. So, um, and I still get questions from people. Well, I just really love to eat oatmeal in the morning. And I say, listen, this is supposed to be a lifestyle change. If that's what you happen to like to eat, then try to just not eat a lot of those starches the rest of the day. You know, the problem is, is when you think, okay, I'm going to eat all these whole grains and for breakfast, I'm going to get whole grain cereal and skim milk. And I'm going to have whole grain bread sandwich with my whole grain sun chips. And I'm going to have a whole grain granola bar. That's when the problem is, but they, who's to say that that's not the right way because all we're telling them from a nutrition establishment is to eat whole grains. And so I'm actually trying to have chat GPT create, create me an algorithm where I can rank foods in their nutrient to glucose ratio, where you can look and say, okay, let's compare sweet potatoes and carrots, how much vitamin A they have to their glucose content, because mm-hmm. then you're looking at how much glucose am I actually getting for my nutrient? In- like, is it worth it? Yeah. Is yeah. it worth it, right? Yes, this is great. This is tons of nutrition. But like broccoli has everything that quinoa has in it with for like almost no glucose. And so yeah. it would be an interesting, an interesting one. Yeah. That's awesome. <clears throat> and you're taking all, all these findings from the studies and, and the lifestyle, and you're basically implementing them into this new app that you're going to be launching soon, correct? Correct. So there's some videos that are just a little overview of the research. And then other videos are just, like I said, trying to take complex concepts and making them something that's understandable. And then we'll also have, um, we'll also have infographics because some people learn by seeing images and visuals. And so, you know, even for my book, I had, I can't remember, maybe 25 custom made medical graphics so that I could help people really see the concepts that I'm trying to explain and so it's it's been a fun journey for sure. Yeah. And if people want to t- take a look at the app, you know, get access to it, is there like they can go to the website or how could they find it um, before it comes out? Yes. So if you go to our website, they we, we will let you all know when it up and it actually launches. So it should it's for sure going to launch before the end of the year. Right now, we're just I liken it to building a house like you feel like your house is built, but then there's just all the a million little things. So that's where we're the phase we're in right now. The testing kits are supposed, they're supposed to launch this week. We've been working really hard to get them launched this week um, so that people can get an idea of where they're starting. What's their insulin levels now? And they can do it at their own home. And so, yes, the best way to get to our website, is, to get to our app is to go through our website and then it will be on the Apple store as well as the Google Play store. Amazing. Awesome. Amazing. Well, congratulations. And I can't wait for it to come out. We'll definitely link it in the description of this episode. So everybody, if you're listening, definitely go check it out and just, you know, put on your calendar to, uh, you know, download it before the um, before the, the year ends. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Well, do we have any other questions you want to ask? Or? No, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I'll definitely be DMing you and commenting on your posts a lot because I totally oh. love them. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. And I will be there when on your dairy free posts, when you get a lot of haters, I'll say, no, 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 <laughs> it's totally true. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Well, I appreciate awesome. y'all. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Ollie. And thank you, Johnny, for jo- uh, joining us. We will be back next week with another episode. So until then, we'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Hey, sisters, just wanted to let you know that all of our podcast episodes have corresponding blog posts that dive deeper into each topic. So head over to PCOSweightloss.org slash blog. Is it slash or is it backslash blog? I don't know. I've always heard one or the other. It's forward slash. Or slash? Just in case, you can also go to PCOSweightloss.org.